0: Welcome to the Advisor Succession Podcast, where industry influencers and financial advisors share real stories, tips, and tricks about how to create your ideal succession plan and best practices for growth by merger and acquisition. Hosted by industry peers, Jason Brotsky and Clayton Shearer, we hope that you find today's conversation useful as it relates to your succession plan or business growth strategy. Before we jump in today's episode, don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button, dependent on which podcast platform you're listening on today. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Strategic Partners Financial Group and Cambridge are not affiliated.
1: So AJ Sohn, welcome to the Advisor Succession Podcast. I appreciate you making some time to hang out and have a conversation today.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. It's really a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I'm glad we can make it happen. And let's jump into the conversation so that hopefully um, our audience that's listening, whether we're talking to maybe a younger advisor new to the industry uh, who's wanting to get started, or maybe we're talking to an advisor who's looking to implement their succession plan, I'm excited uh, for you to share some of your experiences, and I really hope that this um, helps them. So with that said, um, I think the first thing that that I would really love to hear about is, I introduced you before this conversation came on, but I'd actually like to hear a little bit about um, how, how and when did you make the decision on your own to make mergers and acquisitions um, an active part of your business growth plan? Yeah, so the first time this came up to me was, uh, I would say mid-1999
2: and I was at a uh, fast food restaurant one night after work with the guy who had trained me, An advisor was a few years ahead of me. And we were talking about the industry and the business and he was trying to give me some insights. And what I shared with him at the time was that this industry to me seemed like it was a lot of mom and pops all over the country. And it reminded me of the ambulance business from the 1980s and 1990s. And the parallel there is, The ambulance business was a lot of mom and pop ambulance shops in each town, and they went to the local hospitals and whatever. But there was no national player until AMR Ambulance came in and started buying them up and created a national brand and national systems and made a huge company out of it. And I remember telling my training manager at the time, that's what the financial advisory business seems like now. It's like that pre- Mom and pop shop, no national real players come in and systematize the whole thing yet. And wouldn't it be neat if over time we could put some of these things together and create more of a, a regional or a big national entity? Somebody's going to do it. And that was probably two or three years before I ever did my first acquisition. But it was when I first really started thinking about, hey, this there's something here. But that was the Wild West. Nobody was buying and selling back then.
1: And so just for reference points, so take us back for a minute to 1999, where were you at that point uh, leading up to it in your actual business, um, in your career? Yeah, I was about 18 months in
2: at that point, and uh, so still really was getting my feet wet, didn't know what I didn't know yet, and relying on my former training managers who are they trained us for six months to a year, and then you were kind of on your own, uh, but I'd stayed friendly. so we were going back on that and I was just in the very beginnings of where this was going, but I was coming out of running multi-million dollar corporations at the time. And so my brain wasn't looking like an advisor who was just starting out. My brain was looking at at this as a business problem of somebody who ran ten million dollar operations and trying to apply those principles to what I was doing at that point, even though it had nothing to do with it. You know, it was just uh, at that point, a, a one-man shop with a part-time assistant who'd only been in the business for eighteen months, and you know, every day was a struggle. But I was still looking at it like, well, how do I run this like a big business?
1: So this brings up another question I would have. So coming from someone here who started in uh, a very captive insurance-based broker-dealer, um, so so to your point, mergers and acquisitions in nineteen ninety-nine. Uh, If they were happening, um, I I sure as hell wasn't hearing about them, right? And so I'm curious, what, looking back on it, was your manager's response or thought process when you were having this conversation about what you wanted to do with making that an active part of your strategy?
2: Yeah, his response was, well, that's kind of an interesting idea, but who are you going to buy and how do you value something? and His recommendation was just get to know older advisors who are going to retire soon, and maybe they'll leave you their business because nobody was selling. We didn't know there was a value to those practices back then. And you were just hoping that, hey, I'd befriend an advisor who was much closer to retirement, and someday they would just kind of anoint you as their successor, and they would move off into their retirement, and no money changed hands because it just wasn't thought of it wasn't until a couple of years later that we really started saying okay well if i wanted to buy these things how would we do it and that led to advisors within so it was a captive broker dealer that i was part of at that point and you could sell a little internally that was it was a nascent kind of a thing so we were thinking about okay well what if i just bought 15 of your clients from an advisor who's already established it, but it wasn't ready to retire or maybe they wanted to sell the bottom 10% of their book. And that was the start. It was it was buying and selling pieces. And then it was, well, why don't we just buy the whole thing? And that's where we started. 2004, we did the first big one with a retiring advisor, who, who frankly is still my planning client to this day. Um, but we bought the person out. And um, they were thrilled because they were getting what they thought was a big check for something they didn't realize had any value. And I was looking at it like, well, that is a
1: big check, and I hope this works. And it worked great. And so for reference, um, talk to me about how many how many total acquisitions have you done? Um, if I heard that your first one was in 2004, just to give our list- listeners kind of a reference point.
2: Yeah, we've done five or six over the years. I, I would love to do one a year, but uh, but that's because we have the systems all dialed in, and we've got the infrastructure to support it. Well, we've done, you know, four, five, maybe six of varying sizes, from small to large, and uh, and every one has been a win-win-win, uh, and that's the way I like to position them. It's it's a triple win. It's got to be a win for the client first that we're going to acquire. We have to be able to do as much or more than the selling advisor for that client to make it a win for the client. Obviously, the seller is getting paid if it's done correctly, so they're winning. And then we're getting all these new clients and new people to hopefully make an impact on. And so we win too. So the good deals are the ones that are a triple win.
1: So let's dig in a little bit to, if if you don't mind, to what some of the the intricacies are to some of these deals that you've done since 2004. And um, I'd like to get into, uh, as a starting point, um, I'd really like to get into it from the first, Couple of them when you were uh, earlier in your career. Um, I'm curious that at that point you're a well, you've been buyers all along, but what were the expectations early on of your business partners from a seller's point of view? And then, if you don't mind expanding on that, I'd also be curious to hear about your thoughts on how the expectations of sellers and financial services have actually changed since the first couple that you were part of. Yeah. So that first big
2: one we did in 04, uh, I didn't have business partners. So it was me and a couple of staff people taking that one on, which was actually very liberating because there was no one else I had to check with. It was just me. Uh, As we've developed the firm and there's now three partners and, all the various advisors and, and support staff for those people, uh, the three partners will will meet to discuss possible acquisitions and make sure we're briefing each other and everybody's on the same page. So it's, it's definitely morphed. Uh, from the seller's perspective though, that first one, the seller was just thrilled that they were getting what they thought was a sizable check. And, and it was at the time. Uh, but because nobody had any idea how to value those things, at, in today's market, it probably would have been double the price, but nobody nobody knew. We were we just agreed on a price that I was looking at it saying, well, how do I make my money back in 24 months or less? And the seller was looking at it saying, well, do I feel like this is a fair value I'm getting for my practice? And that was the sole basis of how we did it. The seller's expectations today are are far more different. I think it's a lot like uh, somebody who's selling a house insofar as everybody thinks their house is probably worth every last penny and it's unrealistic Um, I think a lot of the financial planners who are selling their practices want the entire world and it's unrealistic even in this hot market where the valuations are definitely up the sellers certainly want a lot more Uh, I don't think most sellers realize the tax implications uh, of how they're bought and how you characterize the purchase price so there's there's ways to negotiate that in the sellers also The ones we've always talked with and dealt with, they definitely want to make sure that we have the ability to service their clients better than they can. I just want to make sure we can do as good a job or better. Every seller we've dealt with wants to make sure we can offer more to their clients than they could. And it's really not about the last dollar. They want it. They think it's worth it. But at the end of the day, if they think they're getting a fair price, but you're going to be the right people for their clients, that is what makes them happy.
1: So I would ask this, as sellers through your acquisition track here have become a bit more sophisticated in terms of their expectations, how, as you've added partners, and I want to get into the, the how you added your partners internally in just a few minutes, but for now, as you've added partners and you mentioned making the decisions about who you're going to work with, um, how have you and your team adjusted your expectations of who you want to do business with as a seller? That's a really good question. So at first, we we were
2: targeting much larger groups than we would look at now, but we do have a minimum size. We're not going to go below a certain amount because it's frankly not worth all the time and effort for a, a small revenue practice to acquire. So at our size and our scale, there's we have to have a minimum or more of assets that we can we can acquire in order to make it really viable for us. Conversely, if you go too large, you can be sort of like the, the tadpole that's trying to swallow the, the whale. It's, it can be very difficult to do as well. And so we have a kind of an upper limit on where we want to go. Also, I found that as you go higher and higher in the target structure, bigger bigger targets that you're trying to acquire, There's a lot of competition for those. So there seems to be a sweet spot. If you go below a certain number, a, we don't really want to go that low. It's the small anyway. And there's a lot of competitors because there's a lot of one or two person shops who can afford to go after the small ones. So now we've, we've got more people to go against. And at the upper limits, it might be too big a financial risk. They may have too many offices. It may be too many clients. And again, you're now dealing with a different set of competitive buyers because they have very deep pockets and maybe they're institutional, but again, you're dealing with more competitors. So if you can go between the minimum and sort of the maximum that we have, it's certainly enough for us to make it lucrative and do good things for the clients, but it's also, we're not dealing with the big, big, deep pocket buyers and we're not going against the the one or two person shops anymore. So we've self-selected our competitors.
1: So I would be curious, When you think about the amount of deals that either you've passed on or the other party has passed on, when when you say you have minimums, how much of that limiting factor is the seller's amount of clients relative to AUM or is it more strictly AUM or revenue-based irrespective of the amount of clients that that advisor would be selling. Yeah, for, for us it's more,
2: we don't want to have too small a client base that we're looking at because there's inevitably going to be in, in a small client base, maybe five or 10% of those clients, which are a small, small number that represent most of the assets. And if those people leave in the transition, it undershoots the whole thing. So we want to make sure that there's enough clients that if several leave in the transition, we're not going to be hurt dramatically. But not so many clients that you're dealing with a thousand new households and a thousand new bodies and the average client size is small enough where now it's really an issue because there's too many of them so
1: again there's a sweet spot so it sounds like we're saying that sellers may be out to be wise to start looking at uh, diversification within their own business just like they have their clients look at diversification
2: in a portfolio absolutely and we've seen some firms and we're looking at it now firms that will segment off their smaller clients and create uh, maybe one or two of their advisors that just work with smaller clients under a certain size. And then we've seen a very small number of firms who've done that will actually when they go to sell, say, okay, as the buyer, do you want this smaller group or shall we cut that and and sell that off to another party as a separate entity? So they're breaking up their clients and they can sell them as a big pool or they can sell them as discrete pieces to different buyers. Ah. It's, It's you mentioned the word maturing. A while ago and this industry has certainly matured in mergers and acquisitions and I think that piece of segmenting and then selling as a group or selling in discrete parts is the next maturation phase.
1: So I want to talk more about that I'm curious to bring everybody more up to speed on your team. Can you talk to me a little bit about at what point in the evolution of the growth of your practice through these succession plans When did you start to uh, build out your team? When did you start to bring on partners? What, if you would, what drove those decisions? And how much of how you're structured today, maybe could you see at that point when you did your first acquisition, say, back in 2004? That's a big question, but would you mind unpacking that for the audience? Sure, but in reverse order, let me take that one. So uh, could I have foreseen...
2: Building it out the way we built it out? Absolutely. Back in 04. Because remember, I was coming at it from a mindset of being in a different industry and running a multi-million dollar business. So I was used to having department heads that reported to me and staff under them. So I always looked at this like, well, this is going to be a big company someday and we we need to have department heads and what are they going to do? And not necessarily who fits those roles at that point, but I could see the roles that were going to have to be there. So started, uh, there's, as I said, three partners, and we started adding them, uh, when we switched broker dealers about a decade ago, it seemed like a good time to implement that as long as we were changing up things anyway. Uh, and the reason why the three partners are who they are is because they bring much different skill sets and there's a tremendous amount of trust and there was trust. And we'd known each other, uh, for at least 10 or 20 years beforehand. And had worked together for a number of years so it worked really well because we knew where each one was going to play we each have what we call them our sandboxes I don't get in the other two people's sandboxes and they don't get in mine Uh, so one person is particularly good with investments so they're the chief investment officer they run the investment committee they run the models they run the money they run all of that Uh, the operations person is the other uh, third partner and she is She started with me when I was two months in the career, and we came up together and built things together. So even though she had no prior experience when we started doing this together in, call it 1998, at this point she's got 22 years of experience and you could drop her into anybody else's financial planning firm and she'll improve it dramatically because she knows how to operate. So I don't get into HR. I don't get into how the workflow happens. I don't get into staffing because She does that. So we have very discrete roles, and we're very cognizant that we don't go into each other's areas.
1: Interesting. And I would be curious about how have your individual roles, responsibilities changed, we'll say from 2004, when best I can tell you did your first acquisition without much of a roadmap and very few uh, supporting cast members, but a very important few, if I had to assume Mm -hmm. from what I've heard. How have your roles and responsibilities changed from, say, 2004 to the time that you uh, brought on partners, you said, I think, about 10 years ago? Yeah, so now when we're looking at mergers and acquisitions, because we each have our
2: distinct expertise, when we get kind of past the second or third meeting with a potential acquisition, each partner will then interview and meet with the potential seller but they're looking and asking questions from the lens of whatever their expertise is so the operations person when she's interviewing the the potential seller she's looking at it from an operations standpoint how many accounts where do they live what are the sizes what type of accounts do they have what kind of staff are we going to have to apply do they have to repaper everything to come to us she's looking at it from an operational standpoint when the chief investment officer maybe goes to lunch with the seller they're getting into the investments and he's Picturing it from, okay, well, how are they invested now? What type of accounts do they have? How do we move them to our models? Do we want to? Are there things we can learn from the seller that we should incorporate? But he's looking from that lens and I'm looking at it from more of the managing partner role of, okay, financially and strategically, does this make sense? And can we do the right things for the clients? And then the three partners will get together at some point through this journey with a potential seller and the three of us will compare notes and then we'll make a decision as a group does this make sense? Does this seller and their their client base fit what we want to do?
1: And I'll ask this question knowing that I might be heading to a dead end and if I, that's the case, we'll fix it. I'll fix it. But I'm curious when when you and your partners see things differently as it pertains to whether a seller is a great fit for you, would you mind sharing like maybe some common sources of what caused that uh, different viewpoint? Yeah, I'm thinking about an
2: potential acquisition we we looked at about four years ago um, where the the chief investment officer and one of our other younger advisors who'd found the target in the first place uh, they really really wanted to do the acquisition and the operations director and I didn't we couldn't get comfortable with it and that led to the three of us as partners and that younger advisor had a series of meetings together where we discussed why two of us wanted really to do this and two of us were thinking this is never gonna work. Um, And we went around and around for a while and at the end of the day, um, it basically came down to me as the managing partner to say, I don't think this is the right thing. We're not gonna commit this kind of capital to an acquisition that we all don't, the three partners certainly don't agree and, uh, and we passed on it. but I remember at the time saying to that younger advisor because he was looking at it like oh this is great we're going to do this acquisition I get to work on all these clients it's going to be fantastic but I remember telling him I think it was 2,000 accounts and a relatively small let's let's call it 100, 125 clients and saying this is this is a square peg in a round hole and geographically not good for you because you're going to be driving all over. Geographically, to to meet with these clients, it's not right. And as I explained them at the time, in my experience, the most successful acquisitions we've ever done are the ones that came together seamlessly. It was so easy. The deals came together like, yeah, this just makes total sense all the way around. And there was really no convincing, no roadblocks, no nothing. The easy ones work out the best. So when you have to put a square peg in a round hole and you're fighting to try to make it work, it's usually a sign that it's not going to work.
1: So thank you for that. I'm curious, one of the things that you mentioned to me when, when I asked you ahead of this conversation what you wished more people understood about the obstacles that you've had to overcome on this journey that you're sharing today. Um, one of the things that you shared is um, wishing that more advisors thought bigger. Mm -hmm. And could you expand a little bit on, you know, some of the things that you have learned for yourself on surrounding yourself with like-minded advisors who also want to grow? Yeah, I've found that the self-limiting factor is
2: my inability to think bigger. And what I mean by that is we're at a size now where we're probably five or six times bigger than I ever imagined we could be. But I'm already thinking, OK, we're not quite halfway where we should be. And I would never have thought about the AUM size that we're at or we want to get to even five years ago It because I was limiting my own thought process. And I got around a group of business owners who are not in our industry. But part of the major thing those folks gave me was they asked questions that led me to think bigger. So when I would describe my financial planning firm to them, they would say, well, why aren't you doing a billion? Why aren't, why aren't you doing X? Why aren't you in, instead of being in five states, why aren't you in 50 states? Why aren't you in multiple countries? And things like that that maybe we're not going to do. But when you start thinking about it, well, why couldn't we be at a billion? And what would it take to get to a billion? And do I know anybody who's got a billion under management? And what do they do? Well, they're not any different than me. Uh, so I start to think bigger. And um, I try to surround myself with several advisors that are in other parts of the country so that we don't compete with each other geographically, but who I would trust with all the details of my firm, all the confidential stuff, because I just trust these guys. And we challenge each other to think, well, this is what I'm doing, why can't you do it? Or, hey, I I like what you're doing, but why can't you scale that up 3x? And then we talk about it. And you start to realize, I could go to 3x. There's no reason I can't. There might be some different resources I'm going to need. There might be some different strategies they have to employ, but I could do it. And then you start to think bigger. And then once you get there, you start, well, why can't I double that? And my, I know we maybe we don't want to use names in this podcast, but for example, I would think about Fidelity Investments because I'm in Boston. And I would think, well, I don't need to be Fidelity, but why couldn't I be 10% of what Fidelity is? That's still a big company. Well, if If the Johnson family could start Fidelity and make it what it is today, why can't I do 10% of that? So it's thinking bigger. And I think a lot of advisors just don't think big enough. And maybe they don't have people to challenge them to think bigger. And so they self-limit.
1: You know, it's interesting. One of the things that brings to my mind is going back to my first few years in the industry. uh, I I think that really resonates with me and would resonate with a lot of our listeners, both in the buyer and the seller category, um, some of the biggest ideas that I've ever been challenged with came when I started going to groups and surrounding myself with entrepreneurs and professionals that were not financial advisors. So I think that there's a lot that our listeners can take away from that thought process. And I I would commend you for being willing to surround yourself with both advisors from within our industry and advisors from outside our industry. Um, that's, that's really cool. I think I'm I'm also curious here to talk about, so I'm sure that a lot of our listeners fall into one of two categories today. I would assume we have some folks that want to be you in 2021 no they, they, they don't they want to be themselves. Uh, we'll call it new AJ I think some of our folks might want to be new 2021 AJ but from a structural point of view they may be where you were in say 2004 right so for folks in that boat you know what advice would you give them um, if they're feeling like they're limited or even unable to sort of get that rock started to be pushed down the hill with making mergers and acquisitions a more active part of their career that just don't have the scale that you have right now Yeah there's no reason you can't do a smaller acquisition even
2: as a one-person operation uh, So I would start looking around for small mergers to be able to do small acquisitions and small to me you know maybe you find somebody that has five or ten bill- 10 million under management. And uh, that would be pretty small, but a one-person shop can certainly handle that. Uh, Another thing that we've seen four or five times, I think we're on our fifth iteration of this comment in in the 20-plus years I've been doing this, but I would tell those people who are starting out maybe, my 2004 version, uh, you're going to have to spend extra money in infrastructure and expense to create the capacity to then grow into I, I've called them inflection points and we've had four of them in my firm's history and we're gearing up for a fifth and this is again where my operations person this is her sandbox because all four times over the years she's come to me and said hey we we need to spend money and it might be we need more staff we need more office space we need new tech whatever it is but I'm the one saying I don't want to spend that money We're we're quite profitable now and I like this and she would say well we're at a capacity now and if we want to grow we have to put all this money in to create the structure to then grow into, and we've hit that ceiling four times. We're doing it again now, uh, and I would say that my 2004 version, or people who might be younger in their career, you may have to spend some money, not knowing that you're really going to get the payoff for maybe two or three, four years down the road on it. But you need to create the capacity. That could be hiring your first or second assistant. It could be hiring a paraplanner. It could be uh, adding a second office. It could be technology that allows you to trade more easily to give you the scale. It could be hiring a trader to do the trading for you, but you're going
1: to need to add that ability. So to what degree, I'm curious about this, as you've um, acquired these uh, firms throughout your career, how often do you find that you may be um, having to push deals for sellers out substantially longer than they ideally want them to happen so that you have the capacity you know, to handle that acquisition and handle it smoothly. Can you speak to sort of how you've managed that balancing act as you've continued to hit these, as you put it, infliction points of, of internal growth, but also continued clearly to uh, have an open mind and open eyes to new opportunities? Yeah, I've never tried to push the seller off and create extra time
2: because they're so hard to find those correct deals anyway that I want to strike while the iron's hot. So I generally won't go deal shopping until I feel like we already have the ability to handle something. And by something, I mean I'll have thought through what kind of size and target I'd like to have. But unless we have the capacity to handle it, I won't go shopping. Because if I'm the seller and you approach me and then you want me to wait six months or a year or two, I'm not waiting. There's 50 other people who want, to, who want to buy my book too. So I'm not going to be the one that's making the seller wait because they'll go somewhere else. I'm also not going to hire uh, somebody just to service a book that we may or may not get. So I need to be sure that we have the capacity before we go find the acquisition target. Or if I found somebody that maybe doesn't want to sell yet, but I can sense that you know maybe the next three years or so they may want to. Then we'll probably start adding some staff or something ahead of that. Well, I continue the relationship building, but we aren't entering into any kind of negotiations yet until we think we can handle it. Ah, last so. thing you want, you don't want to take on somebody's book of business and not be able to fulfill the client's needs. It's not fair to the client. So we can't do that. We can't let them down.
1: Once we shake hands on it, we better be ready to provide all that service. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so I think my takeaway from what I just heard was... Uh, you've had best success when you've sort of, uh, Kevin Costner, Field of dream stuff here, built it and they came. Yes. Right? Yep. Fair fair assumption? Absolutely. Cool. So AJ, I think probably for the other part of our demographic today who represent potential sellers, something I would love to have you comment on about how you've um, seen it play out in your own practice is... um, We've talked about what you looked for in a seller today. We've talked about how that's evolved as your business has grown. I'm curious though, for the sellers that are out there that do not have an internal plan that might happen to have stumbled upon this conversation and they don't really know where to start or don't really know what questions they need to start with when it comes to finding a suitable buyer, you know, what do you wish that more sellers would have asked you when you were getting to know each other?
2: I think the sellers need to do a really good job asking potential buyers about their firm and what their capabilities are. But ask what their weak spots are, too. Because if any buyer says to you, well, we don't really have a weak spot, then you should move on. In fact, you probably should run. Everybody <laughs> has weak areas. Um, so testing that, I think, is, is good for a seller. I think the seller should also take a look at what types of clients does the buyer already have? Is there Are there niche specialties that they work with? Are there certain size clients that they prefer to work with? Are there uh, just investment only, for example, advisors that they don't do comprehensive planning? Well, as a seller, I would want to know. If I'm with my clients doing comprehensive planning and everything that goes with it, I want my buyer to continue that too. I didn't put 20, 30 years or whatever it is at that point into helping all these clients only to have them serviced by somebody who isn't going to do what I did and do it better. Uh, So I would probably also, if I were the seller, be asking, well, tell me about your processes in planning and investments and so forth. And tell me why you can do it better than I could. And that's a, a relatively uncomfortable question to ask. But if you don't say it snarkily and you say it out of genuine interest, you know, tell tell me why you could do it better. What can you bring to my clients that I can't already provide? That at least would give me, depending on if it's a good answer, it would give me the comfort that, okay, now I understand why this buyer would be good for my clients. And they know why they'd be good for my clients, which is even better. So I think the seller should look at that. And then nitty gritty, um, understanding the tax treatment if I'm the seller. Uh, because there's a big difference between obviously the capital gains piece of this and an income tax piece and d- depending on how you structure the deal You can move the needle or that pendulum toward one side or the other and as the buyer versus the seller You're diametrically opposed to your interest there So the seller is going to want it treated one way and the buyer's going to want it treat it another and then it's a negotiation
1: So I know both of us. I've known you for a few years now and I know that both of us um, have seen Different um, very different environments in merger and acquisition deals that we've both individually been part of Um, one of the I Think it's a fairly new approach. Um, At least it's an approach that has a clever new name quote sell and stay unquote Mm -hmm. Uh, But but I'd like to if you wouldn't mind um, hear a little bit about how you feel about um, giving sellers an opportunity Uh, to continue to have what I would call more of a gradual, maybe sunsetting um, exit experience in their own practice. Um, So could you comment on on what sell and stay uh, means to you and what you feel like uh, that could potentially do for a seller that may be ready to start implementing a plan but not ready to walk away from all of their relationships? Yeah. Before I touch on that, though, because the very tail
2: end, you hit on something. Uh, this, every seller I've ever dealt with thinks they need to stick around for a year or two or three because the relationships won't transfer. They have to be there to do the handoff. In my experience, if you're the seller, all I need you for is about 30 days. As the advisors, we think our clients can't live without us. I know I, I fall into that trap too. They can. Uh, and as much as they want, to see you as the advisor succeed and you want to see the client succeed. I think the advisor tends to overestimate the emotional impact they have with their clients. So I think in a perfect world, if I can have the seller stay for maybe 60 or 90 days and then go retire, that's about right. This, every seller I've ever met says I have to be here at least a year or two because I, I need to make sure they're comfortable. No, they'll be comfortable. We've done enough of these deals to know, um, The client wants you to be happy too as the seller and they don't need you to stick around either we'll take it we just need the initial handoff and then we're fine Uh, but back to the sell and stay model i know jason you and i have talked about this offline in the past you have a slightly different take which i think is very unique into solving what i thought were some of the sell and stay issues you found a way to fix it which is great i'll let you describe that on a different podcast But for the seller who says, I'm not quite ready to retire, I would like to sell my business, but I wanna stay as an employed advisor for let's say five years. That's fine in two conditions. One, you're now adding another potential employee and culturally, how are they gonna fit? So now you're not just looking at the business, do you wanna buy it or not? And does it fit and are the clients good fit for you? But also now you're looking at, well, I'm gonna have this person on my staff, in my meetings and whatnot for years, are they the right fit? Would I hire them as a person? And that's a pretty tough thing to do, to find somebody who wants to stay and they'd be a good fit. Um, Another piece to that, though, is a lot of the sellers, you know, they own their firms and they built them. So there's an ego, rightly justifiably earned ego. And I, I dealt with somebody not too long ago who wanted to do a sell and stay with us. And it was terrific. And to his credit, he's at the end of the day, the 11th hour, we had a handshake deal. And at the end of the time he said, "You know, I thought about it and I'm used to being in charge. I don't know if I could be a good teammate unless I'm part of the C-suite in the firm, you know, like a CEO, C, see something. And while I truly appreciated, like that's very intuitive of him that he realized it, it also made me think, well, I'm not going to have somebody stay. For a period of years who's going to buck and question every system we have and everything we do because they're used to being in charge they're if you sell and you stay you are not in charge and that's i think a bitter pill for some people to swallow and then lastly for the seller again your business is not worth the same amount up front if you want to then stay and have a salary as well i can't pay you top dollar to buy it and then also pay you to stick around and be the advisor It just economically doesn't work. So it would have to be a slightly lower purchase price because you're also going to earn money being the advisor for a few years. And the total will be as much or more than you would have gotten if you hadn't stayed. But you can't have the full upfront money and then also get a salary for years because the economics have to work for everybody.
1: Uh, So I think takeaways there from what I just heard might be if you're a seller, number one, uh, this is actually something that um, I have found in some of the deals I've done as well. It fascinates me that we work in financial planning, and oftentimes our sellers, who also are financial planners, don't actually know what they need from the asset that is their business to fit into their financial plan Mm -hmm. uh, to gain independence for themselves. I think you're absolutely right. More <laughs> often than not, that's what I found. So one takeaway would be, um, I think, for our audience who's listening that may be a seller at some point in the future, um, I, I would I would encourage you, I'm sure AJ would as well, to, to know where that asset fits into your own financial plan uh, and be empowered that way to say yes or no. And I think the second piece of it is, uh, what I took away from that, is that advisors that want to stay and be part of the transition, maybe don't need to be part of that transition for nearly as long as they think they're necessary. And I think that's um, probably intimidating and freeing both, <laughs> right, AJ? Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: We've <laughs> we've seen people uh, in those discussions, because I'm usually very upfront with people, if they think they want to stick around to make the transition happen, that you really don't need to be, and here's why. And I've seen it go cut two different ways. Some people are, as you said, very empowered, very freed, like, oh my goodness, I can go do what I wanted to do and retire quicker. And other people generally get a sad look on their face because they maybe nobody's pointed out to them that they aren't their client's best friend. And that's a tough realization. But, you know, we've all got a handful of clients that maybe we are really good personal friends with, but most of them we're not. We care about them. And they they're nice in their, let's call them acquaintances, but they're not truly friends. And your acquaintances don't need you to be around. They just need you to say, because they trust you as the seller, hey, I'm, I'm going to transition this relationship to Jason because Jason and his team can do as good a job as I could or even better with their resources. That's all your client needs to hear is that you, the person they trust, say that Jason's the guy.
1: And then they're fine very very well said my friend so I'll tell you what I I think this is a good spot to start wrapping up and and AJ I haven't said this on the podcast yet but I just really appreciate you bearing with um, a rookie podcast host as we start to do something fun here so I appreciate our friendship and I uh, very much respect what you've done in your own life and I appreciate you being here today Um, as we start to wrap up I would just be curious about one thing Um, If there was sort of one one message that you could get out to our industry peers uh, as it relates to kind of the importance of of business succession in our industry, you know, I know that you've said to me before that with the amount of advisors that are aging and need to have a transition plan, you know, how important it is to you to have a small bit of influence um, on that Industry in addition obviously to your own business life, but if there was one message that you could give um, That would connect more buyers and sellers in our industry, you know, what would that be to you? Talk to people
2: and by that I mean talk to other financial professionals and get to know enough people that when you're either a Potential seller and you need the succession plan, you know a younger person in the industry that you've come to know and like over a period of a few years, for example, you know who they are. And if you're the younger person who's looking to stick around and do an acquisition, when you know enough people, somebody is going to retire. And if you have a good relationship with them, you're probably going to have your first foot in the door. So getting to network and know people, whether you're the buyer or the seller, is just critical. It's tough to go in blind as an acquirer or be the seller looking blind for the successor. It's far better to have a good group of people that you've come to know in other circumstances when there wasn't the pressure of buying or selling that you know are going to be good. And I would thank you and uh, for allowing me to be on the podcast. And um, taking a chance i guess
1: thank you (laughs) the chance my friend was all taken on your end uh i i I appreciate those words and uh, i'm excited to have a round two maybe if i can figure out how to bring video along with the audio we can prove to people that we actually exist i don't want to break your camera maybe we Uh, shouldn't do video (laughs) to be to be discussed at some point in the future i'm sure over something fun um AJ, anything else that we missed that you would like to make sure that our audience takes away from today's conversation? Yeah, just speaking to
2: the younger advisors really quickly, I think acquiring is the best way to build a practice. And I've heard the terms used by other people. I didn't make it up, but acquiring a client one at a time by traditional pro- uh, prospecting, that's retail building. If you acquire a practice, I would term that wholesale. You're Your wholesale is always a better way to build something because you effectively get more to work on and you get it at a lower cost. And the cost could be financial, it could be time, it could be effort to find the clients.
1: Wholesale is always better. Very good advice. So as we wrap up here, for those of our guests that want to learn more about you personally, I know that one place they can find you, and this will be in our show notes. And so uh, whenever I get more than about three vowels in a word, I find it's helpful to put those in the show notes. But I know they can find out more about you and your organization, um, Antaeus Wealth at antaeuswealth.com. Mm-hmm. Um, any other places that you would direct them to go or parting words? Yeah, feel free to call my office number and I'm
2: happy to chat with anybody who's heard the podcast. Uh, and the number is 978 264 99.99. My direct extension is 202 And the reason I put that out there is uh, a lot of people who are ahead of me in this career were very nice to give me their insights when I was up and coming, so to speak. And I like to pay that forward. So I'm happy to be a resource and just talk to anybody listening. If they had comments or questions or anything about the industry they wanted to talk to a neutral third party about, I'm happy to do it.
1: Well, I I have to tell you, I've listened to hundreds of different podcasts probably in my life. I've never heard a phone number given. And, A.J., it says a lot about you um, and why I really respect you that you would give that out. So uh, I have to say, this has been a fun conversation. I'm so glad. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for making the time. I really would love to do a round two. Maybe we can corral one or two of your partners to get some more perspective. Who knows? Um, uh, For our listeners. But, uh, A.J., Tons of fun today, man. Thanks so much and um, all the best. And I, I know that you don't need too much luck, but best of luck and best wishes to you and your team. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Advisor Succession Podcast. Until next time, have a great rest of your day and don't forget to click that follow or subscribe button so you can enjoy first access to our podcast content. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. Advisory services offered through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Strategic Partners Financial Group and Cambridge are not affiliated.